radio but just very influential in creating the term or filling the term with meaning she's uh, currently the program director at WMOT Roots Radio welcome to the crazy Chester radio hour Jesse Scott hey it's great to see you thanks for being my guest today and uh, we ran into each other a couple days ago and you just came back from uh, South by Southwest where you uh, did some remote recording for WMOT. Tell me a little bit about South by Southwest and what were some of the most memorable events for you? Well, I kind of have a different philosophy of going to things like South by than most people. Um, I create my own event. (laughs) And so we booked, I booked 30 artists and we broadcast live Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday from the backstage at El Mercado, which is an amazing room. Nate Kinney is an astounding audio guy. And um, so that meant that I didn't have to take as big of a crew with me. So Val Hepner, the general manager of WMOT, and I just went down there and um, Nate provided us amazing audio and we took pictures and Val executive produced and gave me cues and we coordinated with the studio back here um, in Nashville. And, you know, we brought, oh gosh, we brought so many amazing artists to the stage there. That includes people like Paul Thorne and Reckless Kelly and the Reverend Seku and uh, Liz Brazier, who's an NPR slingshot artist that we nominated. And um, slingshot is the initiative that the NPR music stations are all uh, embracing to launch new artists. So, but more about that in a minute. Um, we had the Peterson Brothers, who are um, a, a blues band from Texas. Uh, I've been watching since they were early teenagers, like 12 and 14 years old. So, um, there were all kinds of bands that came and played for us. We had Courtney Marie Andrews, and we had um, Janova Magnus. I mean, there were so many interesting, a lot of women too this year. I think that in Americana, we're starting to see more parody, more female-fronted projects, more female-initiated projects. So that's a whole other topic as well. Um, I've been doing this a really, really long time, at meaning radio programming, and um, uh, it, it's interesting to me when you first launch a format, typically the males are the early adopters, but then you start to get females listening. Now we've even reached a, another level of maturation where there are so many more females that are actually embracing the artistic part of it and making music. And so that's a really healthy thing, especially with a counterpoint to what's going on in country radio these days where there aren't that many women. But anyway, so my, my trick to South By is you go, you set up shop, you have an amazing space, great 
easy parking that artists can get in and out of um, so they're not driving around trying to figure out how the heck they're going to load out or load in. Um, we have food, we have liquor, we have indoor plumbing, <laughs> and we have amazing bands that come. And I always like to give the band something where they're not just playing for the people in the room, whether we're doing video or whether we're doing audio that is going to be broadcast live or, you know, or time shifted and played later. But, you know, I find that's a great enticement for bands to increase awareness. And that's the whole idea. Yeah, and you just mentioned the, the <laughs> equality issue. And uh, in many of your previous jobs, you were a first as a female DJ, program director, and so forth. Uh, my wife is is in the tech industry. She's a, she's a software programmer, and she's trying to do the same thing there because they have the same issue there. It's yeah. very much male-dominated. But there's really no reason for it if you look 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 deeper so uh so i'm glad you mentioned that and besides that also the artists you mentioned are they are all part of that americana umbrella but they are it's very diverse and there's some more r&b some more country some more folk and and what is americana to you there's a book that kind of sort of lit my brain up about really looking at what this movement is about and it's called the mojo triangle and the thesis is that the big bang of american music happened with the overlay of different nationalities on top of one another altogether their music created different shades in the palette of americana or american music which you know we throw back to to name americana um, as a movement. Um, so basically the Mojo Triangle is a geographic place. It's Memphis to Nashville to New Orleans. And you had Native Americans, African Americans, all kinds of European traditions. I might also add that that triangle only tells part of the story because it really happened lots of other places as well. You can extend it to Oklahoma or Kentucky or Bakersfield, California even. Um, you know, for this effect to occur. And the effect, again, is that these nationalities all brought their music um, to one another, even sometimes before they could speak to one another. They were hearing and appropriating bits of it into their own music. And so something new was born. Um, and whether you talk about Dixieland or whether you talk about the blues or whether you talk about country or whether you talk about, you know, rockabilly synthesizing out of country and turning into rock and roll, this was all planted by multiple traditions, which is unlike anywhere else in the world, basically. That's why it happened here is because of our melting pot. Yeah, and uh, a couple of years ago, or it might be a couple and a half now, WMOT was created. Well, let me, WMOT already existed, but it became a roots radio station, an Americana embraced station. Can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of that project? <laughs> yeah, you want to know on the personnel side or the just the uh, operations side? Yeah. Or both? A little bit both, <laughs> I guess. Like, you know, from the idea to the station. So um, Ken Paulson, the dean of the College of Media and Entertainment at MTSU, has been a long time Americana supporter. And... 
Um, he, uh, a couple of years ago, I saw him, there was an Americana um, party that honored the Gavin uh, radio chart on its 20th anniversary. I was one of the Gavin editors and I was at this party and Ken was there too. And he said um, that he was contemplating taking the radio station Americana. So I had an inkling that maybe something was going to come down. And um, I, I just packed my car one day and I was in New York and I moved I moved here. I just, I wasn't really certain whether anything was going to happen with this or, but I just really felt like there's so much going on in Nashville that this is really where I needed to be. So I just packed my car with what I could fit and I drove here. When I got here, um, I got a, a, a phone call from a friend saying that I should reach out to Craig Havikhurst and see what was going on. And Craig and the people from Music City Roots had initiated conversations with Kim Paulson and MTSU and were looking to provide programming to them and also find a home for Music City Roots. And I just happened to walk in, you know, and had a lot of experience programming radio before. So as we got to know one another over the course of that year, so this was uh, the beginning of January 2016, by May, um, they were introducing me as the program director of what would become the radio station. It still took time for the state to approve the bid because it was a bidding process and, um, and it's a state university. So, you know, those things have their own trajectory. And when the, um, when, when it was, the bid was awarded to, um, to the people from Music City Roots, they actually brought me in to be the program director of the new radio station. And we had already started ripping music to hard drive. Um, you know, we um, were working within uh, the, the university system. They had already purchased a couple of platforms that they had been using for jazz that we then were able to expand to, um, to use them for the Americana side of things. And they're still being used for jazz. One of them is Music Master, which is a music scheduling program that um, many radio stations around the country use. And the other was the hard drive and the automation system, which is Audio Vault. Now, I can get you into the weeds with all of this, but we actually did an install of the latest version of Audio Vault um, during the first Americana. <laughs> that the station was up and running on. So that was, we launched September 2nd, 2016, and Americana was like two weeks later, and we did that install in the middle of Americana Fest. And, um, you know, so it was, it was a little difficult to attend the Americana that year because <laughs> there was a lot of stuff going on in the background. But anyway, um, we now have about 10,000 songs on the hard drive, and... Um, We've expanded into some nooks and crannies. I think that specialty programming is really important to take you a little further into one vector or another. So we have a gospel show that airs on Sunday morning. It's called Somebody Say Amen. And um, we have a really cool 50s and 60s rock and roll show that pays homage to Buddy Holly and Little Richard and uh, Chuck Berry. And that airs Friday night at seven. Um, so, you know, we have some shows that kind of like extend our reach, uh, fully flesh out a, a little bit more of part of the story of how this happened. But I really see this music as a continuum of everything that went before in the early days of when rock and roll was born. 
Yeah, and besides that, you also have some. You mentioned Music City Roots, but like finally Fridays and a special programming like South by Southwest, where you a lot of live elements too, which I really like because yeah. that's you cannot get anywhere else. It's so fun to be able to do that, you know. And I mean, there's a wing and a prayer. So typically, um, radio programmers don't like to do live broadcasts where you have an extended period with one artist because they live in fear. Oh my gosh, what happens if somebody doesn't like this artist? They're going to be gone for 45 minutes. We don't necessarily play in that same sandbox because what our task is as community radio is really to create that community and feed that community. And if we do a good job of being somebody's primary radio station, being part of their lifestyle, then hopefully they will contribute. We're listener-supported radio. And so we are sustained more by our our fans than we are by advertising dollars. Yeah. So when I I do the podcast mainly because I want to share you guys' story and especially some of the creators in or behind music that don't necessarily get to talk about their craft too much, like songwriters and session players, not the artist who gets that platform a whole lot. And my motive is to, to share these stories, but also to turn people on to good music. What What is your, is that similar to you? Like, is that something that we share? Or what is like your motive? Like, you know, to me, it's just, I just want to turn everybody on to this great music I love and these great people. Is, is that yeah. something similar to you? Oh, too? absolutely. Um, number one, I, I still think it's about the song. So give me great songs. Give me great production. You know, the production can be really, you know, bumming and strumming. It doesn't have to be fully flushed, but it has to sound good. And it has to be in the pocket. I always look to sort of, I tell people this, and it's kind of a really bizarre way of looking at audio, but it's the furnishings in the room that you create for somebody to live in. And everything has to feel good around you. You know, it's got to be simpatico. So when I go to listen to music, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for something that I am just at one with the universe when I hear it. It's not tugging at me. It's not soul sucking. It's just like creating this this buoyant energy that wraps around me. And um, that's how I listen. Um, I think all the elements on a radio station, whether it's the voices that you hear interstitially or whether it's the DJs or you know if there's music beds that it all needs to kind of like be of a piece it needs to make sense sonically um, so I listen for all of that but underlying it all I'm the girl at 12 years old who would send my box of records 45s to a, a birthday party that I wasn't invited to <laughs> like take my records <laughs> It's always been part of my life, so. Yeah, and so you were very young when you discovered your love for music and radio. What was the spark? Can you remember? <laughs> um, yeah, we um, we had um, uh, a live-in maid who was from Alabama when I was really little, and she turned me on to the real versus the not real. <laughs> It was really quite clear to me at age four <laughs> that this was and that wasn't. And so much so that, I mean, I'm old, but um, my mother bought me um, Pat Boone's Tutti Frutti when it came out. <laughs> and 
I sent her back to the store to get me a little Richard. I was five. <laughs> I'm like, no, mom, this isn't it. <laughs> and for whatever reason, music has always been really important. And, um, you know, I was glued to the radio growing up. Uh, you know, went from the dangerous first wave of rock and roll, which was Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and all those guys. All of a sudden it got cleaned up and like about maybe 1959 with all the pretty boys, the Bobby V's and um, Bobby Rydell's. And I was like, ooh, what is this? I mean, again, it was that real versus pop, you know, because things get slick. They get like kind of, you know, okay, well, we're going to take the danger out of it and we're going we're gonna to make it safe for everybody. And those are the times that I bail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you got this passion in you and then I guess in in 71 you got a call to go to Philadelphia Pittsburgh actually and what happened was um, I really wanted to be on the radio I had gone to um, Ohio University uh, for communications in 1967 and I wound up coming back to New York and going to City College and studying soci sociology um, but I was still yearning for radio. Now, mind you, there were no women on the radio back then. I mean, there was the occasional weather girl on TV. Um, you would hear the occasional female voice, like, you know, if a, a husband was emceeing a nighttime symphony program, he might bring his wife and she might be his sidekick. There were very few women on the radio at that moment. And um, I didn't care. Um, so armed with my third class FCC endorsed license, which I had gotten at a broadcasting school um, at, you know, nighttime and I was in regular school during the day. Um, I walked into ABC on 6th Avenue headquarters in 1971 and I didn't have an appointment. I, I just walked in and said, I want to be on the radio. And they said, just one minute. And they walked me into somebody's office. I sat with him for two hours. And he said, you know what? We're going to hire you. <laughs> I had never been on the radio. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But I had an incredible will to conquer. <laughs> and so I wound up getting, um, getting hired by WDVE in Pittsburgh in 1971. And in June, I started my career. So it's coming up on 47 years. And that was rock, mainly? Rock. We, we actually were um, what, what we call now underground. You know, it was, it was freeform. It was, we played Dave Van Ronk into Led Zeppelin, into Black Sabbath, into Taj Mahal, into, we broke bands like the Doobie Brothers in America. There were some, I mean, Pink Floyd, when we got Dark Side of the Moon, we listened to that whole album. We were like, oh! This is stunning. We're putting this whole thing on the air tonight. You know, Pink Floyd had had several albums out up until that point, but that was just a total breakthrough. And there were no rules back then. So it was like the Wild West. And if you, if the art touched you, you were able to put it forward. Yeah. And then you, your second major job, though, took you into country radio. That was a little bit later. So I was in Pittsburgh for five years. And... Um, uh, I had three jobs, uh, Top 40 being the last. I did two album-oriented rock jobs and then Top 40 at 13Q. And then I wanted to come back to New York, which was my home. So I started putting, you know, tapes in the mail and feelers out and stuff. And I got a gig <laughs> at WPIX um, in New York. They were disco. 
And for two weekends, I played Fly Robin Fly and Rock the Boat and all the disco hits of, you know, 1975 before Ed Solomon called me. He was the program director of WHN, which was an AM country radio station in New York City. They said it couldn't be done. Um, and I had um, worked across the street from him in Pittsburgh, so he knew my work. And he said, I want you to come be on the radio. And I was like, okay. So this was a Friday, and uh, I, I was to start on Monday. I, on Saturday night, went to the Capitol Theater in Passaic, um, where I used to hang out some, and um, was hanging out backstage with the crew. And I was actually, it was one of these old school theaters that had um, the uh, owner's office with glass overlooking the stage. And so I could look down and see Kiss on stage and see this audience that I understood, I knew who they were, you know, pondering Monday, I'm going to be talking to totally different people and I have no idea who they are as I was about to start doing country. And Monday evening, I launched my country side of my career in 1975. I was there for um, six years till 1981 and then I went to WNBC and did Top 40 again with Inus and Stern and that whole mayhem. but. Anyway, the thing that was really cool about doing country for me, um, not having grown up with it, so it was a, a learning curve. But the other thing that was like really amazing is that my boss, Ed, came over to my house one day and I had Grant Parsons, Flying Burrito Brothers, Goose Creek Symphony, all these Blue Ridge Rangers, all kinds of albums sitting on my shelf. And so he was like, oh, we need to play these on the radio. He was a very free thinking program director. He wasn't many program directors really looked to tighten everything down and just play it safe. That was not his stance. He wanted to expand the horizons and make it fun, make it interesting, make it unique. So we pulled all this stuff off my shelf and we carded up Sing Me Back Home and all kinds of other nuggets, which interestingly, I still play today. But when I was playing those on the radio in 1976 in New York City, you know, the light bulb went off above my head up. I was like, this is a format. We don't need to be playing mainstream country to play this music. We need to just be playing this music. It took 25 years for XM Radio to hire me to do that. You know, 25 years of the light bulb and just tucking it away in the back of your brain. You never know. You never know if you have the opportunity to do something like that ever in your life, but it presented itself. It was a lot of years later. Yeah. <laughs> And Hold on to your dream. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, uh, something I wanted to ask you is there is a Rolling Stones connection. Yeah. Would you mind diving into that a little bit? <laughs> so um, uh, New York was amazing back in those days because you could meet people and they could factor into your life in significant ways that, you know, you were not afraid to strike up a conversation with somebody at the bar. Anyway, I met this guy one night, his name was Zappa. He was not Frank Zappa. I did meet Frank Zappa, but that's another story. Um, and he was a, an audio engineer and he was like, hey, I'm building this studio uptown. You wanna go look at it? It's gonna be in this new venue. And I was like, sure. So we get in a cab and we go up to what would become the, um, hard rock 
on 57th Street and um, he's showing me the rack that he's installing and we're talking about, you know, audio requirements. And um, Isaac Tigret was the owner and he came sweeping down the grand staircase with his Nehru jacket on. And I got introduced to him and he said, oh, you're a DJ, would you do the music for the opening party for the Hard Rock when we open New York? I said, sure. So um, I ran a whole bunch of tape. I was playing Icicle Works into Slim Harpo into, you know, really broad palette of stuff. And um, during the party, Isaac came to me and he goes, how fast can you crank these tapes up? People were dancing. I was bump dancing with Dan Aykroyd. It was all just amazing looking around the crowd, you know, the hard rock cafes, you know, clientele or, you know, friends of the family even. Anyway, Isaac was um, um, engaged, uh, or I'm not certain if they married or, or if they were just together at the time with, um, with Ringo Starr's ex-wife Maureen. And Maureen and I got to be buddies. And Maureen kept saying, I need to introduce you to somebody. You, you, know, you need somebody in your life that lives in this world. And I was like, okay, whatever. So one night Bobby Keys was there and I wound up sitting at the table with Isaac and Maureen and me and Bobby and Bobby and I wound up going for a drink afterwards and thus started a year of hanging out with the Rolling Stones just like that. It was pretty amazing. Yeah and uh, I heard that you also made some mixtapes for Keith. Yeah we had the best time. I mean I had 20,000 pieces of vinyl in my house and um we would just like dig into like the old Atlantic records, R&B stuff, or I mean, you know, we would like sit <laughs> and, and the three of us just be huddled around listening to music together. It was like one of the highlights of my life, Bobby, Keith and I, you know, doing that. It was amazing. I mean, it really seconded the motion for me, you know, and in fact, I have to say that Keith um, is instrumental in me pursuing the path that I did because the counterpoint to that was listening to me on WNBC where I was, you know, talking up the to the lyric and, you know, I was not saying anything. I mean, it's DJ Patter. We all know it. You know, hey, it's another nine in a row, whatever. I mean, we weren't even doing that back then, but, you know, it was insignificant little bits of, you know, <laughs> uh, just fill the 13 seconds of the intro time to where you hit the vocals coming in and, you know, WNBC music. So um, he listened to me and he said, this ain't it. You need to do something that has you in it. And I took that to heart. And um, when my son was born in 1986, when I came back after being home with him, uh, I really wanted to be part of the Brain Trust. And that is the second part of my career, which kind of started in 1987 or 8. Um, when I came back after, you know, being home for a year with my son to be more than just a, a DJ in the night. Yeah, and then from New York, <laughs> your journey, it took you down to Florida for a while. L.A. first. L.A. first? Yeah, my son was born in L.A. Then we moved back to New York and um, I became um, the music director at uh, a radio station in suburban New York and Connecticut and was also working at WYMY on the weekends, which is, you know, the mainstream country radio station doing country. Um, and then uh, 
I was looking for an operations manager gig. So I got my first one in Melbourne, Florida, and I um, moved my family down there in 1989. We were in Florida for seven years, and um, the last radio station that I was at in Florida was um, WMMO in Orlando, where I was the music director also. And we were breaking artists there, like Sister Hazel and Matchbox 20 and um, Paula Cole and on and on. A lot of bands came up through our, you know, Dave Matthews, a lot of bands came up through our ranks. And um, I started going to the conventions and started getting to know the other people in the industry. That led me to coming to Nashville to be program director of Lightning 100 in 1997 and I was here in Nashville for five years um, I did a year at, at Lightning and then um, I started doing indie promotion um, where you call radio and work you know work records I was working Robert Earl Keane I was working Amy Lou Harris I was working some Americana-esque titles and then I was doing WSM on weekends um, which was great also, which put me back on doing country radio. And then um, I got hired to be the Americana editor of Gavin, which is a trade magazine um, that had a lot of different formats that serviced different sectors of, you know, of the radio world. And uh, uh, so I was there for the better part of two years. And then I got headhunted to go to XM and put a format on the air an Americana format on the air, although they didn't want to call it that. They wanted to use the earlier term, which when I started playing Goose Creek Symphony in 1976 on the radio in New York, it was called Progressive Country. So that's what they pitched me on, and we later changed it to Americana as the name started bubbling up more. I was at XM Radio. I was one of the first um, people that they hired. I was the first female that they hired as a program director. And I was there for the better part of eight years until the buyout. So we were taken over by Sirius and then they kind of did a Noah's Ark thing or we'll keep this one and we'll scuttle that one. And uh, they kept Outlaw Country and my channel went away. It was called Cross Country XM12. Yeah, and around the same time, or maybe even a little bit earlier, the Americana Music Association got founded and you were in on the ground floor there as well. How? Can you tell me a little bit about the, yeah. how that originated? <laughs> it was so cool. So I was at Gavin, and we were at a, a, um, a South By, and um, one of my bosses said he thought it would be a really good idea to get everybody in the room that was, we were all disparate forces. You know, we were all like rugged individualists. We were not joiners. Nobody joined anything. We didn't want to, you know, there was there was nothing to join, obviously, back then either, but... You know, so you had Jack Emerson, who was working with Steve Earle, and you had uh, Tamara Saviano, and you had a variety of different people that were in different pursuits, whether publicists or legal or a record label or management or, you know, radio. And we all kind of, there was an original little gaggle of people. I don't remember exactly the number, but I'd say maybe, um, maybe 12 or 14 people in a private room at South By talking about maybe we should get together and do something together. It was like the seed that planted it as an idea for the organization. And then we decided to bring it back and have a facilitator-led session in Nashville. 
And that's what the Americana Music Association was founded out of. And there were maybe 30, maybe more, somewhere in the vicinity of 30 people at that. And that was in 1999. And we founded it. I'm the uh, only remaining uh, original board member um, continuously serving, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Yeah. So you're talking, you know, about 30 people. And now it's this becoming this worldwide organization that's been lobbying for you know billboard shorts and grammys and all that what that must be very gratifying to know hey we kind of you know had this idea and now it's actually a thing and it's a growing thing it's amazing to watch it seriously and when i walk around americana fest now and it's so much larger i mean the first year we did it i actually threw the event um because i hadn't gone to xm yet and you know, Gavin had ended, and uh, so I had time on my hands, and so Carrie Estrin and I actually were the organizers of the very first event. We had one venue, <laughs> and we were at the Hilton, which had just opened, and it was wonderful. And at that, Oh Brother had a cocktail party. We couldn't have possibly known what that record was about to do, you know, in terms of really extending the awareness of this music. And I like to say, that I think that there were so many people that listened to the, the Sonics on Oh Brother Where Art Thou that were growing up that might have been 10 or 12 years old. And then when they were 22, that music was incorporated into these artists' music in a way that was no apologies. They just went for it. And it revolutionized yet another generation to love some of the old-timey sounds. Yeah. And... Uh... One thing I would like to talk about briefly too is, I guess after the exam period ended for you, you started Music Fog. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what Music Fog is? Yeah, and I, I just sort of give it to you from the, we were on the road together, a lot of the XM employees and I to come to events like South by Southwest or Farm Aid or Bonnaroo and, and produce live radio from the field, typically on a tour bus. And um, that was a couple of different parts, one of which was the capture of the live concerts that we had rights to because I negotiated all of that with people. Um, and the other part was to create interstitial pieces on the road to connect the dots or sometimes be live. Um, and connect those long form pieces, you know, fill a little bit of time, say, hey, you know what, we were gonna bring you Just Stone, but they haven't, you know, they actually were golf carting audio to us. I mean, we, we were in the dark ages when we first started that. We, we were burning CDs on stages and then they were golf carting them to us. Or we got to the end of when we were working with Bonnaroo and they were flying fiber to our bus. <laughs> we had like one bunk that was all digital recorders and each was associated with a different stage but we had we had conduit to the bus and I mean we refined it to this amazing level and we were back hauling back to DC on satellites and it was amazing I mean especially like you're in the middle of a field at Bonnaroo you know it's a cow pasture and you're doing all this high-tech stuff it was really I love that but anyway I digress um so we all took the buyout, all those folks that were on the road with me. We loved being on the road together. And the other thing that was so amazing, we never really got the opportunity 
to do at XM, but was part of my plan for it was to really like kind of capture all the crazy stuff that happens on the road. You know, Bonnaroo is um, um, in June always possible to have huge thunderstorms. We had Xavier Rudd and his didgeridoo up on our bus because it started pouring down rain and they were, you know, tarped and they were like, can we, you know, can we seek, you know, shelter on the bus? We're like, come on up. So those kinds of things that were happening were amazing. And, you know, I really felt there was a story in, in those as well as just the, the music and the, you know, the camaraderie. And that each of those events brings a different tribe together. And I think that's really important to look at you know, all of these different tribes. Lollapalooza would bring a different one from Farm Aid, would bring a different one from Bonnaroo, from South By, from, I used to do Music Fest at Steamboat Springs, it's Texas Red Dirt World and in January every year. Uh, each one had its own flavor, had its own stuff, but there were also commonalities that were, I think, really interesting. Anyway, so the idea behind Music Five was to just keep going and have a megaphone and keep, you know, recording in the field and archiving stuff. and. Um, last year, we, we nearly touched 11 million views. Um, I think we were like, I don't know, 50,000 shy of 11 million views. Uh, so, you know, we have about a thousand videos up. We shoot beautifully. We light beautifully. We care about the audio. That's really important to us. We're not just sticking up an iPhone, you know, and, and capturing the audio on an iPhone. We're doing, you know, and Alan and Heath board and, you know, putting the right mic on people, um, which is really important. Some, some voices don't like, some mics don't like certain voices, but they love other ones. So, yeah. you know, being able to really articulate that kind of thing, I think has made all the difference. Plus we really shoot intimate video and like that gives you as a, an audience member, the ability to see that Will Hogue is chewing gum, you know, why is he chewing gum? I can't tell you how many, how many people, you know, why is he chewing gum? Paul Thorne chews gum. A lot of people <laughs> chew gum. And of course, the story behind that is that they use it to keep their throats moistened, you know. So they're not being rude, <laughs> but people don't know that. But typically, you don't see that somebody's chewing gum when you're sitting in the audience. Yeah. You know, you're 10 rows back, you're not seeing the gum. Yeah. How was that to, you know, you mainly working in the audio only field of adding that? element of the visual to the story is that something you were kind of wanting to do for a while or is that an almost sometimes a distraction from just the, the oral adventure well it's something that i really wanted to do for a while because again these this this was so colorful being on the road that i really wanted to capture those kinds of moments i mean we were on the bus in chicago at farm aid <laughs> We had everybody almost in the world on this bus. We didn't have Willie, we didn't have Neil, we didn't have John Mellencamp. But um, the door, we were parked backstage and the door would open to our bus. And nobody had, we weren't marked, nobody had any idea who we were. And Buddy Guy would come out and everybody would like, <gasps> you know, I don't know what they were expecting, but there was a whole gaggle of people at the stairs of our bus. <gasps> and every time an artist would come downstairs, Arlo Guthrie, <gasps> you know, if it was one of us, they'd go, <gasps> because you know, they didn't know us from Adam. But um, we had Arlo and Emmy on the bus talking about their what they used for their white hair, what shampoo. You know, we had Buddy Guy and John Mayer on the bus playing together. We had Los Lobos, or excuse me, um, Los Lonely Boys 
singing a cappella to me uh, in the front of the bus when Jeff Tweedy got on to walk through the aisle to get to the back of the bus where we were doing interviews. And, you know, just, I mean, he was like trying to weave his way through us, you know, me interviewing them and them singing to me. I mean, it was remarkable visual stuff. And I really wanted to capture that. So music for me is still very auditory, um, but these were such cinematic times that I just really felt it lent itself to telling the whole story. Yeah. So you were part of a lot of firsts, not just in you know, the Americana format, but also we, we talked about you being the first, you know, DJ at that station, first female program director. Now, did you have any idols or mentors? I heard that at one point you were able to collaborate with Wolfman Check too. Uh, Love what Wolf. are some of your like mentors or people you looked up to over the years? There are so many, and a lot of them obviously are guys because there were no women really in the kinds of roles that um, you know I aspired to. Um, yeah, I did get to work with Wolf, um, which was amazing and I adored him and but by that time you know I was already on my way sort of he seconded the motion too he was all in favor of me doing my own creative piece and not just you know having a consultant tell you what to do um but that was later and that was in Orlando and he had opened up a um put his name on a club that was on the way to Disney it was called Wolfman Jack's Rock and Roll Palace and I got to work with him um, primarily for that and you know stage managed and uh, talent coordinated like three days you know rock and roll shows with the Shirelles and the, the Shangri-Las and the Drifters and all these amazing you know Freddie Cannon all these you know <laughs> Gene Chandler all these amazing you know 50s and 60s artists um, that was a joy too because again that was my music also so you know we had a real sort of common bond through through that um but primarily the people that that um I took um uh, insight from along the way were my program directors and my my assistant program directors I mean I worked for Bill Tanner at 13Q in Pittsburgh I mean he's an EDM guy and but he was an amazing program director he really got the best out of you E. Alvin Davis was his his uh, assistant program director and he sat me down every single week and we voice tracked and you know he would go over my air check every week and say you could have done this better you could have done this different I mean the nuance the you know teaching somebody how to actually be on the radio and use the time efficiently and get your message out and be innovative with it and not be redundant or you know boring was an utter art form that he opened the door to so that part was wonderful um you know, Ed Solomon, who was the program director of WHN, taught me a lot about wherever you are in a format, whatever your core is, that you can look at the vectors in a different way and be be expansive rather than contract them, which is unfortunately what most radio stations do right now is they're happy to play the same 250 songs that test well in an auditorium test. And they're just playing the same things over and over. And there's not a spark of innovation or creativity or interest. There are a lot of people that that's fine. They're just punching in for 20 minutes, go pick their daughter up from soccer, 
but that's not fine for the art of radio. So, um, you know, that's what I get to kind of, you know, continue is really to, you know, shine a light on what, what it could be, how, how good it could sound if you're not sitting in a room scared that you're going to lose your audience to your competitor. Um, so Ed was amazing in talking about um, uh, how to use research and how to expand sonically. Then I got to um, WMMO in Orlando and Carrie Paul was my program director and he was amazing. He was like a mad scientist. He took elements of classic rock, elements of soft rock and roll, elements of what was becoming AAA and put them all together into a really unique format. And we played all kinds of stuff that you would not have expected. And that was part of the charm of it. And they debuted to, you know, number one ratings in Orlando. They, they debuted at number one when they launched. So I took some, you know, some uh, stuff from him as well. So along the way, I've watched people um, who have had amazing skill sets and a, a real sort of point of view, a purpose. And I, I've, you know, been able to learn a lot through their eyes. Yeah. Well, we're getting towards the end <laughs> of our program. We here. haven't even begun yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the nice thing about the podcast, one thing you'll have to worry about, you know, is the time. time. We don't really have, have that. But, and this might be the hardest question, it probably will be for me. So you do a pretty much daily three hour show mm -hmm. with, which I assume is, you know, pretty much your favorite music every time in many ways. And so if you could do, if you had to like curate one like best of, like something that, you know, you, somebody will put on a spaceship to, Mar <laughs> to Mars. And it's just like, what would be some of the music you will want to have there for sure? It's really hard to answer that question. <laughs> I figured it was. And, and I think it changes you know, every day, I'm sure. Well, too. so so first of all, like what I've done um, for WMOT is I've built a format. So I, I put all of the pieces together. Uh, we upload files into a hard drive. I'm, I'm just kind of giving you the framework for this. We upload them and then whether it's a you know, new song from a new album goes into one category. If it's a recurrent that comes off the new chart in maybe six months and then we're playing it as a recurrent, then it goes into one of our old categories, whether it's you know platinum, gold, silver, dependence on how often you want to hear that. And then I built clocks and I'm always pushing new music into the system, both old and new, so it's always fresh. Um, I, um, I don't necessarily play, in quotes, favorites every day. I am playing careers. I'm playing people that I know are going to sell the Ryman out. Um, I know that there are certain, you know, touchstones that we want to pay homage to that are beyond even the Americana part of it, which we obviously play all the above mentioned Goose Creek Symphony and Blue Ridge Rangers and Graham, but we also will throw in a Patsy Cline or a Hank or, you know, um, a Bob Wills, or we'll throw in a Little Richard or a Chuck Berry. So, you know, our library is really pretty deep and those are all favorites. Then if you want to talk to me about what records I would take to a desert island, it's not even something that I play on the radio. One of my all-time favorite albums is uh, John Martin, Solid Air. Oh, that's and a great And I don't play that on the radio, but I love that. I love Forever Changes by Love, 
one of my all-time favorite albums. We don't play any of that on the radio. So though I've been focused on Americana for all these years, um, you know, I, I have also experienced a whole lot of other music growing up and, and, you know, continuing to go to shows. I mean, I went to see David Gray and Alison Krauss at, at the Ryman. I had never seen David Gray. Um, I was so entranced. I mean, he created this, this visual with like dots in the Ryman. I mean, it was like, you didn't even know you were in the Ryman. I mean, it came off the stage and just it, it, it filled the entire room. Obviously, the music was really moody and, you know, you just floated into it. It was amazing. And then Allison came out and did her thing. And that was amazing, too. So, you know, um, David Gray isn't necessarily somebody I would play at Americana. Um, I think that pretty much Americana stops where synthesizers come in. But... Um, you know, and that's one of the sonic differentiations, but I adored what I experienced and, you know, so anyway, it kind of goes beyond. <laughs> yeah. And another recent show you went to, which uh, I'm thankful you did, it was uh, Donnie Fritz show we did at City Winery a couple of weeks ago. Would you mind just because that's like a common thread through my shows It's like touching upon Muscle Shoals and the legacy, not necessarily just the legacy, but maybe also some of the more current things going on there. If I just throw Muscle Shoals at you, what comes back to me? I went to Muscle Shoals a couple of years ago to do uh, a, a live video session with Paul Thorne. And we were staying in the hotel and every single song that the hotel's system played, their music, if you will, was recorded in Muscle Shoals. And it was everything from the Rolling Stones to Aretha to Michael Jackson. It was varied and incredible. And every once in a while you would just like look up, you know, and go, wow, that too? Because the whole premise of the, the audio that was being played at, I think it was the Marriott, was that it was all recorded in Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals is really like mystical. There are certain places around this country where for no seeming rhyme or reason, the music was a force. And Muscle Shoals is one of those places. And it has a lot to do with Rick Hall, but I think it also has to do with its proximity to Nashville and that people were able to actually get away there and kind of hide out. I think that once you get to a certain level of, of acclaim, it becomes very difficult for you to have a normal life unless you're away. For somebody like the Rolling Stones, that's certainly true, but I suspect for a lot of other people, you know, they hold up at Muscle Shoals and made some amazing creations, and it was birthed there. Um, another town that I love like that is Lubbock, you know, Texas. I mean, Lubbock is a little hotbed. I call it a vortex, you know, why these towns, became the Bobby Keys connection exactly and Buddy Holly and you know Butch Hancock and Joe Ely so many people came out of there anyway so for whatever reason I'm not you know um I don't know if you can divine these things of why these towns had you know the the elements together to make a bigger thing happen out of them but I'm very thankful for Muscle Shoals having that yeah. and in a way it almost doesn't matter just the fact that it happened that's the gift that's the beautiful yeah, thing. yeah absolutely yeah well thank you so much for 
sharing all your wonderful stories with me here over the past hour and uh i'm always you know talking to a radio professional me with being and pretty much an amateur at doing this that's always you know great too because i can pick up a couple things <laughs> here and there and thank you for curating the soundtrack to to you know my life but also like this you know compiling this cool music getting out there and hopefully turning more people on too because it's uh it's just such a wonderful Americana to me is such a wonderful thing because it connects the past with the present and hopefully the future that I don't know if anything else does as well. I agree. And the other thing I would add is the for the people that say there's no good music being made anymore, you're just not digging hard enough because there's tons of great music being made and you know, it's just unfortunate that radio, for the most part, isn't playing it. So, the, you know, if that's the only influence that you have is they're playing the same old, same old. It's not for lack of new music. It's for lack of being adventurous on radio's part. So, you know, we're, we're here to hopefully help remedy that. Yeah. Last question. What's next for you? Who knows? <laughs> I have no clue. I wake up every day. It's an adventure. Um, you know, I love what I'm doing right now. And, uh, you know, I'm totally in the groove. We've got shows coming up uh, in the next two weeks with Dirk Bentley and Billy Strings, um, Margo Price and Josh Headley, and then Daryl Scott and Kim Ritchie. And we might have a special guest on that show. And I get to live in this really wonderful you know, it's like being like in the pantheon of the gods, as far as I'm concerned. I get to like kind of pull these pieces together and I'm just like, holy mackerel. I, you know, we just got back from Austin and we, you know, we broadcast 30 bands and they were amazing. And it included Kevin Russell from Shiny Ribs, you know, who's so creative and so incredible and, you know, really virtually can, you know, he can sing the menu and entertain you. You know, so I, I just, I really love the, the world that I get to live in. And I never know which side of the prism I'm going to be looking at next. I've been a talent buyer. I've been a radio person. I've, you know, I've been a journalist. I, I've seen a lot of different sides of things. And, you know, you just never know if another opportunity is going to come knocking. Yeah. Well, thank you for being my guest. And I wish you all the greatest musical adventures to come. <laughs> thank you. This was the 28th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's legendary Creative Workshop recording studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Music